0: Welcome. If you're new, my name is Ryan. It's joy to have you. Uh, We're in a series, and really starting a series, if you will, uh, called New. Uh, And one of the things I love about the new year is something that it points to inside of every single one of us. Uh, Because something happens for us at at the new year is that it it begins to build this, this deep longing, this deep desire, isn't it, for maybe a new beginning? Uh, In fact, even look at this whole thing, that maybe this has been some of the words you put in in the new year, maybe a a new hope, uh, uh, a new path. New strength, and maybe you've been. 2015 was a hard year, and you're you need new strength, or a new focus, or new purpose, new growth, new habits. Uh, and here's what I love about the new year: is it reminds us or points us to something that is true uh, for every single one of us that we have this intrinsic and deep longing for new to be made new, to be renewed, for life as it is to to be radically changed and new, don't we? And, and, And that's where we start. And in fact, the new year starts this way with a whole set of possibilities, but then we run into something that's a little problematic because we hit the new year and we go, there's all these possibilities, but then we realize we've had a new year before and so we wonder whether it's really even possible, right? But here's what I find interesting, is when you begin to examine uh, the teachings of Jesus, and when you begin to examine Christianity, what you find is that at the heart of Jesus's teachings is not a religion, is is not simply a, uh, a... a way to go about life, or, or maybe just kind of moral modifications, behavior modifications. How do you just make your old life a little bit better? But, but there is this offer, there's this invitation to what he calls new life, like, like all of it not just part of it, not just one section of it, but all of your world to be made brand new. And that's the hope and that's the longing that we start off in the new year with. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, uh, if any of you, if any of us are in Christ, if you have stepped into a relationship with Jesus, what does he say here? He is a, help me out, new creation, not, not a reworking of the old you, but that that you have a new purpose. You're you've given been given a new name and a part of a new community. You have a new heart that you have fundamentally, radically new life. The old is gone. The new has come. Now, here's the problem. It's the problem with starting a new year that we face, and it's the problem for some. and where you're at in your relationship with Jesus. Is we start with all the possibilities, don't we? Of what could be, what should be, what might be. But then we live out the reality and realize, you know what? Hey, Ingram, that, I haven't experienced that. You start a new year and go, you know what, this is the year I'm going to get in shape. It's going to be a new you for 2016, all right. And then it lasts a week, you know, and everybody's gyms, you know, you realize that after the month of January, they go back to normal uh, because everybody gave up. How do you experience that? And for some, that's where you're at in your faith. You look at that and you say, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. So here's the rub. Here's the problem with new, if you will. The problem with new, and the same is true for your year, and the same is true with Jesus. The problem with new is this, is with new, we unfortunately bring our old with us the problem with 2016 that's going to mess you up, that's going to mess me up, is yes, we started a new year, but you brought all the old habits, you brought all the old patterns, you brought all the old of you with you into this new year, 2016. And we do the same thing in our relationship with Jesus. Let me give you an example. Thirteen years ago, December 21st, 2002, I stood at the altar with the most amazing, beautiful bombshell of a woman named Jenny. And at that moment, we said, I do. And I, by the way, I was a blubbering fool. I cried, snot. My dad did the ceremony, so he's standing up here. And like my brother, who's one of my best men, he's, he's just handing me tissues. And I mean, just everywhere. It's just, go, it's just not good. And my wife's going like, really? This is what I'm saying I do too. Thank you very much. And so in that moment, we made a commitment before God and before others. And I moved. I transitioned. I transitioned from an old life. I transitioned from singing. I transitioned from bachelorhood. I transitioned from college guy to married. That, by the way, in that moment became true of me. That was my new reality. My new reality was husband. My new reality was married man, not single slob. However... However, as I stepped into this new reality, I brought a whole lot of my old single slobness with me. See, because I didn't understand at that point, even though what's already true of me, that I was married, I didn't understand how to be married. I didn't understand how to be a good husband. I had no clue of what it looked like and what it entailed. And so I just began to do my old things the way I did in this new reality. And it didn't work out very well. See, because I had a roommate who's my best friend growing up and, you know, in college all the way through. And so guys have a way of talking to each other. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but apparently I learned that's not the way you talk to girls. So, like, we had the trash in the house, and, um, like, in my, with my roommate, you know, in college, we saw the trash, he would look at me, or I'd look at him, hey, man, take out the trash. I tried that once, (laughs) realized, wow, and in my head, I couldn't understand, what, what in the world? My wife asked me about the trash, hey, 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 babe, would you want to take out the trash? I looked at her and I said, No, I don't want to take out the trash. (laughs) Who asked a question like that? No, I've never wanted, I've ever in my entire life wanted to take out trash. And realized, hang on, single slobhood, transitioning over to what it means to be a husband. married. See, get back to this verse if you wouldn't mind because this is going to help you out and then we're going to transition into how to live this out. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, therefore, just think about my illustration here. Therefore, if you step in from single slobhood to married man, he is a new creation. There's a new reality. Husband, the old is gone. No longer single. New has come. Now married. Problem. I'm still married acting and behaving like I'm single. And by the way, for you in your relationship with Jesus, perhaps one of the most frustrating thing, and the reason why that verse has felt so empty to you, is because you've taken your singlehood or your pre-Christness and you just drag it in. And you're wondering, why isn't it working? And so, for the next five weeks, we want to talk about what, what I call really what it means to be a disciple or the profile of a disciple. What does it mean to live out that new creation? What does it live, to mean to live out that, what's true of you, what's already true of you? How do you begin to live that out? Uh, and we, we've spent a lot of time kind of unpacking what we call the profile of a disciple, a profile of a follower of Jesus. Now, by the way, this, this is important. Uh, when you read the writings uh, or the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament, what you'll find is they don't make a distinction between Christian and disciple. See, somehow, subtly in America, we've begun to believe that you can be a Christian but not a disciple. Those two are one and the same. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus, to walk in the ways of your master. In fact, uh, Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, a disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. By the way, did you notice that? Learn. We gotta learn how to do what Jesus said to do. And so we came, we've we worked out as we've studied uh, what we call the Profile Disciple in five core areas to help us as a church, as a community simply follow Jesus. The first is a contagious faith. To have this contagious and compelling faith. Next week we're going to talk about life-giving practices, habits of the heart that help calibrate your heart to Jesus and live out what's already true of you. Uh, the week after that we'll look at meaningful ministry and this whole idea By the way, you were put on this planet for so much more than you could ever dream or imagine. And that ministry isn't something you do, but a way of life. And how you begin to live and step into that. And then, then we'll talk about intentional relationships. Because a disciple is intentional about their relationships. Both with those inside the community of Jesus and those outside. And how do you begin to live that out? And finally, uh, we'll, we'll close it out with extravagant generosity. And, and we just believe... When you look at the, uh, the New Testament, that we have the most extravagantly generous God on the face of the planet who gave his most precious gift, Jesus, and gave us new life. So how can we not, as a people, then live, in the way of our Master, extravagantly generous lives? And So that's where we're going for the next few weeks. This morning, we're going to be talking about a contagious faith. It's really the foundation for all that we're talking about, of, live, of stepping into and living out this new reality, this new creation of who you are. Now, I don't know if you have, I have, and I hope you have, but have you ever been around someone who has a contagious faith? I mean, like compelling faith, like, wow. I, and, and by the way, I don't mean a condemning faith. Some of us have been around some of those people, you know, that, that you get around them and you just immediately feel guilty. You get around them, you feel beat up. They carry a Bible like three sizes bigger than mine, but it's not for like getting into God's Word. It's for beating people. It's like, whoa, like, ah, easy, right? No, a compelling faith. I mean, I just wrote down a few things that when I'm around people with a contagious faith, what, what I experience, I experience around con- contagious faith people that the impossible is possible, like, like when you're around them, your heart beats, and you're just like, wow, wow. You just begin to dream bigger dreams, that that they bring energy and strength wherever they're at, that that they change the entire atmosphere of a room because they have a contagious, it like, just rubs off on you, and you're just like, oh, wow. They have a passion for life and for others, and they're in, just so engaged with what's going around them. They have a level of joy because they have a confidence in who their God is and what's happening. Around them, that they're not shook by the uncertainties of life. And it's amazing that it, when you hang out with someone who has a contagious faith and you just get to hang out with them a little bit, it's amazing that how the mundane all of a sudden becomes meaningful, doesn't it? And you just go, wow. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've been around a few of those people, I subtly began to think this. They must be really special. God must love them more. I could never, ever be that. And here's what I just want you to hear contagious faith people aren't super special they just figured a couple things out and it can be true of you and me it's the foundation bedrock for us as followers of jesus in fact jesus would just simply call it not superstar christianity he would call it normal this is what it's like to be a jesus follower so with the remainder of our time let's look at how do you develop faith how do you develop a contagious faith where, where you're that kind of person? I mean, as I read that, I could just see you're that, that there's this, this sense of, yes, We you identified people, and then there's this sense of, oh, I so want to be that person, and that is and can be true of you. If you got your Bibles, would you open them up to Hebrews chapter 11? If not, it's in your notes, and it'll be on the screen. But to, to talk about how do we grow in our faith and become a contagious faith faith person. We're going to go to one of the most famous uh, s- chunks of scripture on faith. It's the most thorough uh, of, of unpacking what it means to be a person of faith, and, and we're going to see really three big things. He, the author is going to tell us what faith is and isn't, why it's so important, and then real specifically, how do we grow? And by the way, this is where the rubber meets the road. I don't want you to walk out of this room without a clear next step of how to grow in your faith. So let's take a look. Uh, what faith is and is not. Uh, first, the author of Hebrews gives us a definition. He says, Now faith. Is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance about what we do not see. That word confidence is this firm foundation. It is is a deep-seated conviction. It it is the bedrock of what we hope for, and this assurance or proof or testing of what we do not see. So uh, let me give you a couple things of what faith is and is not. Faith is to trust. I trust you. But then it doesn't just stay there. It's to act on trust. We generally take faith as an intellectual activity. Biblical faith is to trust. I trust you, and as a result of my trust for you, then I'm going to behave a certain way because I'm going to act on that trust. I'll give you a classic example or word picture for it. Um, there's a famous tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. Uh, September 14th, 1860, he stretched a rope across Niagara Falls. And he began to go across Niagara Falls and walk back and forth, and then at one point, he took a, um, a sack and was jumping I mean it 's like crazy. He, he was on stilts at one point across Niagara Falls. He rode a bike across Niagara Falls, and, and you, you know one side 's Canada, one side 's the US, and he 's got this crowd just worked up into a frenzy and this amazing everybody and he 's got this wheelbarrow, and he walks across. And, you know, he's a showman. He's got his show on, and everybody's eating it up. And he's like, hey, do you think I could take a person across Niagara Falls on a tightrope? And everybody's cheering, and everybody's like, yeah, you're the best, you're amazing, wow. And he says, great, who wants to get in? And it gets silent. Not one person got into the wheelbarrow that day. Everyone thought, is he the greatest tightroper in the world? walker in the world? Absolutely. Was he doing feats that were unbelievable? Absolutely. And intellectually, did you believe that he could walk somebody across, but were you willing to get into the wheelbarrow? See the difference? And this is the, where the rubber meets the road for some of you in your journey with Jesus is your journey with Jesus needs to change from simply an intellectual ascent of, yeah, I believe God's good. I believe God's big. I believe he can do the impossible and great and begin to go, I'm getting in the wheelbarrow because that's what biblical faith is. Faith is to trust and to act on that trust. And as a result, faith always involves risk. It always involves risk. Where there is no risk, there is no faith. And, and we get this. And so, even if you're not a, a, a Jesus person, religious church, faith is a normal reality of life. Everything we do is by, has faith elements. Every relationship began with a courageous act of faith, you know? When you decide to step out and have that conversation, go, will you date me? Will you? That was a risk. You're risking your present, current reality for a better future reality. It always involves risk, but and as a result, faith is not opposed to fear. We get it in our head that that these people that have deep, contagious faith, that they're never afraid. It's not true. Like, well, yeah, here's the difference. They don't allow fear to determine their decision. They, see, whatever you keep focused on really determines the decisions you make. See, the confidence of what you hope for. You go, okay, I, I can look at how big my God is or I can look at how big the risk is. But there's Fear. There's, that's part of it. You just don't allow fear to rule your decisions. And, and then finally, faith is not wishing. Because we use the word hope, and it's not biblical or the word in the Greek, hope. We use hope in all sorts of ways, you know. Well, I, I hope I win the lotto. Anybody do the Powerball lotto? So yeah, did you win? No, actually you didn't. It's up to $1.2 billion now. Wow. But here's the deal. We tend to categorize that into our hoping and faith. Faith is not wishing. Well, I hope it goes well. I hope it. uh, just wishing. Like when you bought that lotto ticket and, you know, you had a chance. You had a one and I forget, 262 million chance. I believe that was the, but but it was a a hope and a prayer. It was crazy. But that's not what faith is. Faith is the confidence uh, that God is who he says he is. And he'll do what he said he will do. And as you take a step of faith, you find that that's true and you can trust him and take bigger steps of faith. Faith, by the way, this is a good thing to write down, this is how we say it, is a confidence that God is who he says he is and he will do what he said he will do. Very different than this wishy-washy, I hope someday, some way, throw your brain in the garbage. That's not faith. So, we get this definition of what faith is, what it's not, and then the author goes on to tell us why this is so important. Chapter 11, verse 6, he says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not hard, not difficult. It's impossible. Now, think about this. If if faith, if, if the currency of faith is trust, to trust and to act on that trust, think about a relationship. It we can't have a relationship where I go, I don't trust you. <laughs> no, 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 I, love, I just don't trust you. And I'm not going to act on that. And, and, and the funny part is we, we subtly do that with God all the time. See, He says without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists first, that there is a God, and that what kind of God is he? That he rewards those who earnestly seek him that the nature of God, that, he's got, that he is a good God and he has your best intentions and hopes and longings at, at heart. See, where there is no faith, there is no power. Some are longing for this deep, powerful relationship with God and it begins with this step of faith. Where there is no faith, there is no joy. Where there is no faith, there is no intimacy with God. why it's so important where there is no faith there are no supernatural miracles sometimes we read this and go i wonder why certain things don't happen i got to tell you i've been around the world i've gotten to watch certain things happen in america we've become anemic because we have trust in ourselves and all that we can do and what we should do and god is our last resort not our first resort and you wonder why there is no power and why there are no supernatural miracles. Well, I'll tell you what, when you get into a place and you got only God, then you get to see only God come through. And by the way, if you, for those who like wrestle with this whole idea of supernatural miracles, let me give you the, the, this is not one of, this is like just one of the reasons I really believe in supernatural miracles. Have you seen My wife. Just saying, man, I, she's way out of my league. Only God could make that work out, all right? That, that, I mean, she is a 10, I am a 5 on the scale, if we do the scale. She is the most relational, phenomenal, loving person. Um, I'm fairly introverted and just speak what is in my head. And some of you are married to miracles, by the way, and you just need to go, Hey, babe, you're a miracle. Thank you very much where there is no faith, there is no power, there is no joy, there is no intimacy with God, there's no supernatural miracles and there's no reward. There's no favor. The blessing of God is good because you haven't trusted that he is good. You can't afford, by the way, to live without contagious faith we can't afford as a community to not be a people of contagious faith now think about this imagine imagine if this room was filled and we were a people that had this contagious compelling faith you're coming to church think of how how much expectation and excitement you would have in anticipation for what god's going to do and going like i can't wait to be around and i can't wait to see what's going to happen so how do we grow how do we grow in faith Uh, In Hebrews chapter 11, what you notice is he gives us these two teachings and then you'll read the rest of it and he just has what's known as the hall of faith. I mean, he just lists all these people who walked by faith. And in each one of these, there's this underlying undergirding thesis that the author has about faith and how to grow in it. And here's his thesis that God delights. Underline that word delights, by the way. Because we don't think of it this way. God delights in using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He delights, it is of His great joy, to take ordinary people like you and me to do extraordinary things. It's not based on your intellect, it's not based on your education, it's not based on your social economic status, it's not based on anything else but one singular thing faith. In fact, if you go through the Hall of Faith, you'll see there's, there's this theme of people from all different stages and walks of, fi- of faith, of life. The singular thing they have in common is faith. I mean, take Abel, for example. Abel, all we know is like two verses of his entire life. And and he is commended as one of the first in the hall of faith. And here's why. Because this is such an important thing, because some of you need to hear this this morning. The reason why is because he was faithful in the little things. He did exactly what God asked of him. That's it. And forever he says, man, you're first. And here's something I I would just say. The decisions— And the things we do in obscurity are the things that shape our destiny. Do not, do not undervalue the little things. Then you have Enoch. Enoch's a guy that went through his life, and for all we know, whether he was really closely walking with God or not, we we just know one singular point happened in his life. And, And the little text we have about Enoch is after he had his son... Methuselah, which he wasn't good at naming kids. But after he had his son Methuselah, it said this of Enoch, he walked with God. He walked with God. And for some, it's simply a turning point in your life. It's simply the maybe stepping to get married. It's maybe stepping out on your own for the first time. It's maybe your kids leaving the house, and that becomes a turning point, a tipping point for you that you just begin to go, okay, there's a change needed. I'm going to begin to walk with God. And then you take Noah, because for some, you, you think your best years are behind you, and it's passed you up. And, and Noah, by the way, was a very, very, very old man when God called him and invited him on an adventure. And, and by the way, his faith, his faith was to step out and, and, and to, to, to really, I mean, risk his reputation for God. For some, you've built a reputation over years and your best years are in front of you and God might be asking you to risk your reputation. Abraham, he's the father of faith. Here's what I love about Abraham. I mean, he just, he's a normal guy. You read a story, he's got normal um, just struggles. You know how he started out? By taking one step. God shows up and says, go to the land I'll show you. You know what he did? All right. I'll go. See, what we want and what we ask, especially in our Western Christianity, is God, you show, and then I'll go. God, you show me exactly how it's going to work out and how it's going to look, and then I'll go. And God says, no, 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 you go, and then I'll show you how it's going to work out, but you have to take the steps. And for some, God's put and birthed a ministry on your heart. God's birthed a problem to solve. God's birthed maybe a business idea or something, and you're wondering and wrestling, and you don't know how it's all going to work out yet. And God's going, yeah, 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 go. Go take the step go Abraham wasn't anybody special he just said I'll go and God showed and look at where he's at today you got Moses he came from abundance some of you didn't come from rags to riches you just came from a lot and I think most of us do and wonder well could God use us and he took Moses who by the way made a little mistake killed somebody and he returned him to the place of his greatest failure and his deepest fear to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage. And then I love this. Oh, Rahab's right in the middle. Rahab. Think about this. It's so good. Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab wasn't from the right side of town. Rahab has no business being in the Bible except for one thing, because all her credentials and all her activity was wrong. A singular point where she stepped out and trusted God. And not only is she listed here, she is listed in the lineage of the Messiah himself. And for some, you've thought your past disqualified you. you thought your past prohibits you from being used by God. And you thought, you know what, those extraordinary extraordinary things, contagious faith, that's for other people because you don't know where I've been. And God says that doesn't prohibit you. That may indeed propel you. That that could be the bedrock or foundation upon which God's grace is displayed through your life. See, to grow... faith. You've got to embrace a brand new thesis that God delights to use extraordinary do ordinary things through uh, uh, you know, using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And then I just want to give you an application. And we'll close. To grow in faith, you have to take steps of faith. That's it. To grow in faith, You have to take a step of faith. I mean, come on. To grow in faith. It's not enough to stand here and intellectually agree. At some point, you have to get into the wheelbarrow. I don't know if you know this, but um, chapter 12 comes after chapter 11 in Hebrews. It's crazy. We often disconnect those two. Chapter 12 is the application of chapter 11, the hall of faith and the faith chapter. And it starts this way, therefore. And since we're reading through the Bible as a community, let me give you a quick Bible reading tool. Anytime you see a therefore, you ask, what is it? Therefore. Thank you. A few of you know that. What is it therefore? It says, therefore. Therefore, in light of what faith is and is not. Therefore, in light of why faith is so important, therefore, in light of that God delights in using ordinary people to do extraordinary things, therefore, in light of this whole of faith of people who have gone before, who are ordinary like you and me, and who stepped out. Listen to this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I just want to give you four questions to ask. That if you have the courage to sit and ask these questions and answer them, it will grow your faith. Four questions come straight from this text. If you wrestle with these questions, and I have encourage you, wrestle with them, not just today. Take this home this week. Wrestle with it. Go, okay, God. You will become... A person with contagious faith. The first question is simply this. Do you surround yourself with people who fuel your faith? Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, do you surround yourself with people who fuel your faith? Who, when you're around them, your heart quickens. When you're around them, you're like, wow, I'm so challenged. I'm inspired. I'm encouraged. That when you're around them, your heart breaks for the world around you. Do you surround yourself with people whose faith fuels yours? See, the, I, the best way to grow your faith is to walk with the faithful. I mean, sometimes in church world, and this, is, this has gotten this way, that we, we sit in circles and we gripe and we complain. And we talk about, oh, this church isn't meeting my need. Well, I went over here to this or that sermon didn't feed me. And we gripe and complain and whine instead of going, Guess what? There's a people outside those doors that desperately need to hear the love of Jesus and I am a sent one of His. Will you come with me? Are you surrounded by people like that that challenge you? Are you surrounded by people who fuel your faith? We, we know this as parents, those of us who are parents, uh, and I worked in the you know teenage world for many years that you show me a teenager's friends and i can show you them their their future because who you surround yourself with you become like and then we somehow forget it as adults do you surround yourself with people who fuel your faith second question is there anything tripping you up or holding you back i know we just talked about how god can use your past as a trophy of grace And that is true. But subtly what we do is we try to live our own life in our own way and do our own thing and ask God to bless it over here. It does not honor Christ and it will kill your faith. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Is there anything tripping you up? Would you have the courage Is there anything holding you back? Maybe it's a person to forgive. Maybe it's a relationship to leave. For some, you came here and God's word to you is you need to get out of that relationship. Maybe it's an enemy to love, a community to engage, a habit to replace, a sin to confess, an offering to give, a secret to expose. But is anything tripping you up or holding you back? Would you answer that and go, okay. I'm not going to move forward until I begin to deal with this. And you might need to have a conversation with someone. Third question. Have you discovered the race marked out for you to run? Have you discovered the race marked out for you to run? Here's what I love. God isn't going to judge you based on Abraham, Moses, Daniel, David, Rahab, he, he, he's not going to say you weren't like them. He's going to say were you the way I made you? He's not going to say, wow, you didn't show up in that particular way. He's going, I have a particular race for you to run because I made you. And do you know the race you're called to run? And stop comparing yourself to everyone else. Stop comparing yourself to someone else. Well, I'm not doing it like them. It doesn't matter. Are you doing it the way God has called and designed you to be? Have you discovered the race marked out for you to run? You have a unique purpose and calling in your life that can only be discovered, by the way, when you begin to step out in faith. And by the way, this gets a whole lot clearer when you, when you take the time to wrestle and answer the first two questions well. And finally, what does it look like for you to fix your eyes on Jesus? Not, not what does it look like for me? What does it look like for your friend or your spouse? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. By the way, I love how this closes. I didn't read it. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, in its shame. You know what the joy set before Jesus was? You. The point on the cross that he could endure is he one day looked to you and said, I want to welcome you in to my family and make you a new creation. What are your eyes fixed on? What is the focus of your life? Whatever our focus or eyes are fixed on, by the way, that is the object of our faith. I, uh, I go mountain biking once a year, only once because that's all I can handle. But when I go, I go with my brother Eric who his body is built for endurance. He's amazing. He's phenomenal. We'll go running and uh, I, I just, he'll run a couple hours longer than me. Well, because I ran like three minutes. But I mean, he's just built for endurance. And then our buddy that is our guide, he's a competitive mountain bike rider. I mean, this is what he does, and so he'll take us up, and I mean, I'm dragging and dying on this thing, and and he'll take us up on these trails, these single tracks, and these switchbacks, and I mean, it's just intense. At some points, it feels like you're, you know, in a real-life video game, but the consequences are real, you know, if you crash, and we're just flipping and flying, And there's one rule about mountain biking that probably many of you know is that wherever you're focused on, that's where you're going to go. That whatever you look towards, that's where your bike is naturally going to drift. And so if you're kind of checking out the scenery, you're going that way over the cliff. Same is true for you and for me. Whatever you're focused on, whatever your eyes are fixed on, you naturally are going to drift that way. It just happens. Here's one of the things I love about riding with, with my buddy because, I mean, he's amazing. And he flies on these trails. And I'm doing my best just to stay close enough where I can see him. But when I ride with him, this is so cool. When I ride with him, I, I keep my eyes just fixed on him. And so I don't ever have to worry about where we're going because he knows where to go. He knows what to do. I don't have to worry about roots or jumps or anything like that. I just follow the, oh, he went up on this berm over here. So I'm going to go up there. I'm going to do this. If he takes a jump, well, he knows my skill and he's going to know that I can take that jump too. I don't have to worry. I don't have to wonder, you know, um, is it going to be okay? Because my eyes are just fixed and I'm just following him wherever he goes. And when you follow Jesus, some of us are way too concerned about our future, way too concerned about what's happening tomorrow, way too concerned about the economy and the crumbliness and jobs and all those sort of things. He says, if you'll just fix your eyes on him, He will lead the way. You can trust that he knows where he's going and so you don't have to worry about that. Just follow him. If you fix your eyes on Jesus and you begin to follow where he goes, you can trust that that he's going to divert you from things that are going to harm you. And one of the things I love about riding with my buddy is I get to experience the trail like I never would before because I get to go way faster than I was on my own. I get to do things that I never would have done if it was just me. And the same is true for us. What does it look like? This year, this moment, for you to fix your eyes on Jesus. To grow in faith, you have to take steps of faith. At the bottom of your notes, it has what, this question, what specific step will you take this week? Would you fill it out and then do it?